this year's Super Bowl, millions watched as Reba McIntyre imbued the star-spangled banner with her trademark country twang. Daniel Durant, a deaf actor from the movie Coda, interpreted Reba's rendition of the national anthem in American Sign Language. Please welcome, on behalf of the National Association of the Deaf, actor Daniel Durant. But just as he was introduced, the national broadcast cut to Reba McIntyre, and the camera stayed on her, not showing him. The performer of the national anthem was not included in the live streamed broadcast. Instead, people are instructed to follow a separate link just to see the American Sign Language performance and then look at the other screen to see the actual stream of the games. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the importance of inclusion and accessibility. First, living with a disability can be hard, but it doesn't have to lead to a life less lived. Elizabeth Barnes is a philosophy professor at the University of Virginia and the author of The Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. She says her own diagnosis made her confront the reality of finding the unexpected joys in disability. Elizabeth, how did your own experience with disability activism in college lead you to write your first book and then your second? I mean, for me personally, I had noticed this big difference between how issues of disability were talked about in the philosophy papers that I was reading and the books I was assigned for class and then the way that disability was talked about in disability rights communities and activist spaces and things like that that I was involved in just as a person living with a disability And I also noticed that a lot of the things that were said in philosophy were somewhat discordant with my own personal experience of what it was like to have a disability. So that led me to want to explore this issue of what is the connection between disability and the good life, right? Is disability something that just automatically or or intrinsically makes you worse off the way I think is very easy to assume? And then, you know, you could still have a good life, but only insofar as you've overcome this bad thing or you've pushed through it or you're, you know, this sort of tragic overcomer figure that I think we have a lot of the time. So that was really what pushed me in the direction of wanting to think, well, what is the connection between disability and our our overall quality of life, living a good life, that kind of thing? What was the discordant thing that as a disability activist and somebody living with disability was sensing in the way philosophers of disability talk about it? So I think it was this automatic knee-jerk assumption that disability is is just bad, right? It's just something that automatically or or intrinsically or inherently makes your life go worse. And I think one thing that people talk about a lot of times in sort of disability communities is the idea um, of disability gain, right? That it's not that there's not loss. There is loss. And in some cases, there is profound loss. And there are things associated, things very tightly wound into the experience of being a person with a disability that can be hard, that can be challenging, that can be bad, that can be painful. But at the same time, certainly not for everyone. And this is important that people have very different experiences of living with disability. But at least for some people, there can also be gain, Like what you lose in one place, you can also gain in other places. It's such that some people living with disabilities, and I think a lot more people living with disabilities than non-disabled people might expect, end up saying about their lives is that it's different and there are things about it that are hard for sure, but it's not necessarily worse. For people who don't have the disability, I think that's so counterintuitive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get it out of your mind that someone's not suffering from it or feeling a sense of loss. Give me examples of how that is true, that in some ways it opens up something really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that non-disabled people often don't realize about the lived experience of people with disability are these little tiny bits of joy. So 
take as an example, I have a good friend who's deaf, and I mean, she often jokes, she she has hearing aids, and she often jokes that the older she gets, the less she uses the hearing aids and turns <laughs> them on. Um, and she'll talk about things like she loves to go to big cities and the experience of just like walking down a crowded street in New York in total silence and just having this like river of sights and smells and just like this intense human experience, but just having also a place of stillness within that, that she finds really, really valuable and a distinctive experience of joy. There's also, uh, so there's a wonderful activist and storyteller name is um, Kim Kirkpatrick, and she's blind. And she did this blog over a period of time called Great Things About Being Blind, where she just chronicled her experience. She talked about things like being a woman who has no sense even of what it would be like to feel self-conscious about her visual appearance. Mm. It's not even that, it's not just that she isn't self-conscious, it's that she doesn't understand what it would be to be self-conscious about what you look like. And I don't know, speaking as a woman, that sounds, I can appreciate that as valuable. (laughs) That seems like it would be amazing. She also talks about just like not being able to stereotype or judge people based on what they look like. Not having that sort of knee-jerk reaction that it's so easy to have to people. These little small things where it's it's not saying that it's better. It's not saying that, you know, I think there's a trope sometimes where if we don't want to say that someone who is blind is suffering or pitiable, then we want to say that they're daredevil, right? We want to say that like, oh, it must turn your other senses extra strong or it must teach you some sort of special wisdom. And it it doesn't have to be that, right? It can just be... No, there are just these experiences that are different, and you find unique value in surprising places. What was your own experience? Did you have sort of two stages of experiencing your own feelings of disability, where you you had something initially, and then later came different news? Yeah, so... I was um, born with a collagen vascular disorder that runs in my family, and that didn't actually impact my life all that dramatically until I was around 11, 12. So I had some significant challenges with that, things to deal with, ways that it affected my function. And then I will never know whether my previous health condition has any impact or relationship to this. But when I was in my 30s, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And so that is my reality now, the combination of these two things. And disability is a many-splendored thing, and it's a complicated thing. And I'm very wary of saying anything overly simplistic about it precisely because there is so many different ways to experience disability in the world. And it can be tied up with things that are beautiful. It can also be tied up with things that are hard and painful and sad. And like a lot of the the richest things in life, there's a lot of good and bad sort of mixed in there all together. When you got your second diagnosis, did it inform your writing, your understanding, your philosophical insights? It was actually really interesting because completely independently, I had been writing a book on the nature of health because I think uh, one of the things that I found the most difficult and challenging in thinking about the way that I'm attracted to viewing disability and the way that disability is often talked about in, in activist spaces is the idea of like, well, if we just treat this as a form of difference, right? A way of being a minority without obviously being made worse off. We run into this problem where, you know, we don't want to say that about loss of health. I think we really should not say that about loss of health. But, you know, imagine that you went to Flint, Michigan and said, you know, hi, kids, like, sorry about the water, but don't worry, you've been made merely different and we can help you understand how, um, you know, that's right. That's not something, you know, I think we need to be able to say that loss of health is a significant bad effect of all sorts of things and that health is valuable and health matters to people. Being a person with a disability has a close connection to loss of health. Even if it's not the same thing, we can't understand disability just in terms of 
symptoms or certain disease states or, or that kind of thing. It's, it is obviously the case that most of the things that we classify, at least as physical disabilities, harm your health. And so I was thinking about this and I was thinking through these issues and I was kind of fascinated by them. And it was basically when the book was pretty much done and it was written that I got this world-shattering, life-changing diagnosis. And then I turned around and looked back at the book and it was all it was all there. All these things that suddenly were huge and real and looming in my life were these things that I had been fascinated by philosophically. I was in this situation where I was confronting this reality and also confronting the reality of the fact that I feel like I have a beautiful life and I have so much joy and so much richness. And it's not that I think that that has changed in any way. And it's not that I think that I can't continue to live well and live beautifully. And so I was actually able to, I just put in an appendix on the book where I used Parkinson's as an example for basically all the main points that I wanted to make. And that for me, it was this strange piece of quasi-therapy, which I, I know sounds sounds weird to say it, um, but taking this life-changing, life-altering, in some ways world-shattering diagnosis and turning it into the into philosophy was was kind of a way of making it beautiful. And part of this ongoing process that you have as a person with a disability of finding the unexpected joys, finding the hidden joys, making it beautiful. Eventually, we're all going to grow old and lose our health. So we're all in this together. And I'm constantly thinking, why aren't we more tender with one another and respecting the needs and supporting the health needs of all of us together, knowing this is just our condition? Yeah. One of the things that I think people find most frightening about disability is the idea of dependence, of being dependent on other people. But I think if living through a pandemic has taught us anything, it should be that everyone's health is fragile. Everyone is vulnerable. But also, we are all dependent on each other. We have to, as much as we can, take care of each other. And there are ways in which having a disability, living with a disability does create certain types of, of radical dependence. But everyone starts their life dependent and yes. most people end their life dependent. Indeed, that's what happens to you if you're lucky. Yeah, <laughs> um, if you're lucky. And I think one thing that a lot of disabled people have emphasized is Yes, they do have this. And there's this, the phrase of special needs. Uh, you know, they do have unique dependencies and unique things that they require to live well in a community. But they also have unique ways that they can be there for others, and the unique things that they can give, and unique things that they can provide. And I think a huge part of what we're doing when we're trying to figure out how to live with each other is negotiate these shared dependencies. We focus on it with disability because we have, you know, the language of special needs. But again, that's that's just what it is to be a human, right? What it is to be a human is to live in a body that has limitations, to live in a body that you know is going to fail you in some ways and going to be difficult in some ways, but also going to be joyful in some ways. And I think there's something incredibly universal about that. Elizabeth Barnes, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Barnes is a philosophy professor at the University of Virginia. She's also the author of The Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. Her most recent book is Health Problems, Philosophical Puzzles About the Nature of Health. Many parents of young deaf children don't have access to learn sign language. And both of my next guests say this can put deaf kids at a disadvantage and delay their development. Carrie Humphrey and Colin Wells, who is deaf, both work as full-time faculty at Reynolds Community College in the American Sign Language and Interpreter Education Program. They're both with me, along with Weston Broach, who is the interpreter voicing for Colin Wells. Colin, when did you first learn sign language? I started, you know, learning sign language at a very early age, at about 18 months, when my parents started 
looking for alternative ways of communicating with me as a deaf child. So one of those ways is American Sign Language. And uh, there were several workshops that provided professional support for them. All of the family um, was included with that. So my cousins, my aunts, uncles, uh, siblings, it really expanded the use of American Sign Language to communicate with me. So really from 18 months onward, I've been using that to communicate. Technically, it is my L1, my primary language, my first language. It's amazing that not only your parents, but so many of your loving extended family members also learned this. I think Carrie had told us that up to 80% of parents of deaf children don't learn sign language. Can that be true? Yes, it is still to this day true. And that's why language deprivation is such a very important issue to be aware of. From the age of zero to five, it's important to strongly develop that language during that time period. Otherwise, there are neurological delays that can occur because of language deprivation. So my family and my experience, I was very lucky to have a strong support system in place. And all the way and through graduating high school into my undergraduate and graduate programs in college, I was able to um, communicate with my family. Carrie, I'm curious, when you sign with Colin, is it exquisite because it's a first language for him and a lot of people don't have it as a first language? Do you find that the nuance is just incredible? When I sign with somebody who's a native language user, it is different than signing with someone who learned sign language as their second or third language. I learned ASL as my second language, and I will always be a second language user. So there are always new nuances that I can pick up as I continue to interact with people who have ASL as their first language. Carrie's a certified ASL interpreter, but what about you, Colin? Are you also doing interpretation? You did say, sometimes I do this between students who are deaf. I'm not currently an interpreter or doing interpreting work. My goal is to eventually do DI work, deaf interpreting work. People don't realize that deaf people can become interpreters and do interpreting work. This is for specific groups and settings. For example, interpreting for deaf people from foreign countries using different types of international sign language and specific gestures in order to mediate between international sign languages. There are also settings where deaf individuals may need additional support in order to receive functional equivalency. So you're gapping that bridge in communication to make things smooth. Another setting would be individuals who are deafblind. It's actually um, a very popular settings. They have a popular new modality of communication called protactile, in which you're actually placing your hands on each other to feel the sign language. That's for deafblind individuals. So there are these different specialized settings that a deaf interpreter may find themselves working in. And I'm currently studying to do some of that work as a DI, a deaf interpreter. I've read that you've become fluent in incorporating popular idioms and phrases into American Sign Language. Are these usually left out, and can you give me a couple that you're great at? <laughs> well, that would be an interesting challenge um, for this podcast, but I'll try my best. <laughs> um, really, so all languages have their own idioms and idiomatic expressions. Occasionally, they are transferable to other languages, but often... It is a impossible task. So from English into ASL, if I could think of an example, one might say, it's raining cats and dogs, a popular English idiom. So in English word order, you think it's raining cats and dogs, but you cannot sign that in American Sign Language with the hands in literal English format. Because if you do that, 
it would become too literal and it would not make any sense to the listener in sign language. So instead, yeah. you would translate it conceptually to show the intensity of the rainfall and you would use facial expressions to sort of explain that as pouring down rain. And again, this is a podcast, so it would be very hard to elaborate on what exactly the translation into sign language would be. The national anthem at this year's Super Bowl was performed in American Sign Language by actor Daniel Durant, who was in the Oscar-winning film Coda, and he himself is deaf. Did you all get a chance to see him signing the national anthem? Yes, I did. I did see some of it. And it was an interesting topic right now, actually, about accessibility. It's an interesting topic. The performer of the national anthem was not included in the live streamed broadcast. Instead, people are instructed to follow a separate link. You have to use a separate device, a laptop or a smartphone, and you have to figure out how to connect to that link just to see the American Sign Language performance and then look at the other screen to see the actual stream of the games. There's a lot of objection in the deaf community right now regarding the the difficulty of this because the goal would be to have the ASL performer and the singer of the national anthem on the same screen at the same time. Absolutely. I actually went online to look at the YouTube version of Daniel Durant's performance, and it was exquisite. It wasn't just interpretation. It was an acting feat of its own, so inspired and beautiful. Seeing the interpretation was accessible, but it wasn't included in the main broadcast. Individuals who are hearing could hear the national anthem sung with passion, with tones, with emphasis, with the beauty that music can convey. But they didn't have access, and the interpretation wasn't included. So we didn't have the same access to what you described as a beautiful representation of the national anthem. You both teach ASL at Reynolds Community College. Do you get a lot of students who take your class because they have family members who are deaf? Um, really, students often take it for a variety of reasons. Um, they may take ASL because uh, they want to write off their foreign language requirement for their program requirements. Other students have met a deaf person in their life or somewhere in the community, be it at their place of employment, at, at a place of worship like a church. In my experience, there are some students who have deaf members in their family, be it a child or someone who loses their hearing later in life. And so there are a variety of reasons why a student may take a American Sign Language at Reynolds. I've had individuals in my class who are losing their hearing and they're taking ASL for that reason, or family members who have individuals who are deaf in their family and they want to learn to communicate with them better. It's so hard to parent. It's hard to parent no matter what. Adding to that, learning to sign, learning a second language to interpret with your child can be overwhelming. How could we help parents who want this but don't know where to turn? I think the easy answer that people think of is to go to a college and learn the language. There are also community-based programs that can help someone learn the language to communicate. A couple of the school systems in different states will also have programs for parents of children who are deaf and hard of hearing. But no matter the reason that you're learning language, the best way to learn is to interact with native language users. So whether you're taking a class, a community-based program, or something offered as outreach from a school system, one of the best ways to learn is to find the deaf community in your area. Figure out where they're hosting events, where they're gathering, and interact with them directly because that natural interaction is going to be the best way to learn any language. It also feels like you're already overwhelmed by the new baby. It would be so nice if if someone could teach you in your home, right, with a baby. 
That is the premise behind the new deaf mentor program with the Department for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing here in Virginia. VDDHH has a deaf mentor program where they pair deaf individuals who live in Virginia with families who have deaf and hard of hearing children. Currently, the age group is birth through age five, I believe. But those deaf individuals go through a specific training and curriculum to be able to be the best resource possible for those families. That includes language. That includes resources for what's available specific to their area to support them as parents. Uh, Introduction to the deaf community in their area. It's an exciting resource and program that's just started the past few years. Colin, just on a day-to-day basis, what's one thing all of us could do or be aware of that would just make life easier? Because we're not thinking of it. Well, um, I'll try my best to pick one specific answer, but I would say one thing that all people could do in this society is to have an open mind is to be more open-minded. What works for you may not always work for another person. So we all have to be respectful of each other. We have to recognize that we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different ways that we go through life. So uh, if it's one thing, I'd say have compassion, have patience, and for society to come together and work together. I think something that we're working on as a society, hopefully, is to start recognizing that English isn't the only metric to measure language acquisition, to measure success, and to recognize that American Sign Language and the measurements for milestones for language development can show that a child is developing on track with a visual language To date, all of the metrics have been English, and that shows incorrect data for what the child's abilities are because we're using a metric that isn't accessible. Now that we're measuring or starting to measure language milestones with visual language, I think that we're going to see a difference in the perceived capabilities of individuals who use sign language. Well, Carrie Humphrey, Colin Wells, and thank you, Weston Broche. Thank you for joining me and sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you for having us. Carrie Humphrey and Colin Wells both work as full-time faculty in the American Sign Language and Interpreter Education Program at Reynolds Community College. The interpreter who voiced for Colin Wells is Weston Broach. Carrie's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In 2007, Susan Getchick was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, MS, And after she told her university employer, she was promptly greeted with a mound of paperwork and probing questions. Now she's working to help improve the health disclosure process for professors across Virginia. Susan is a rhetoric and composition professor at James Madison University. Susan, you say Virginia is an optimal place to talk about disability because of the Buck versus Bell court case. This was back in 1927. Explain the Buck versus Bell case. So you have a resident of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, So she was living with foster kind of situation. And she becomes pregnant by the foster family's, um, one of their relatives. And it's an embarrassment, right, to the family in Charlottesville that they don't want this to happen. And so they end up sending her to an institution after she's given birth. Her mother had been institutionalized as well, had been deemed, quote-unquote, feeble-minded. So then the Buck v. Bell case, 
the infamous phrase from this is, right, that three generations is enough of imbecile, right? So we want to prevent any further kind of duplication of this scenario. And so they decide, yes, we can go ahead and forcibly sterilize people who have been institutionalized. So Buck v. Bell, court case of 1927, permitted the sterilization of Carrie Buck and also others to come? Right. And what does that say to us about the long history of how we view disability? I feel like there's this notion because she was tested, right? So there was this kind of off-the-cuff kind of test that seems off-the-cuff to me, said she doesn't look right, right? So we're going to make these judgments and decide we need to institutionalize you. Not only do we need to institutionalize you, we should sterilize you. We can look at you, one, and say you look kind of not the same as everybody else. Now you've gone ahead and you find yourself pregnant. We're going to kind of remove this all from the public sphere. We're going to try and normalize, right? We want to have a particular body that's representative of Virginia and the United States. Like, this is what we're looking for. Sterilization and many other civil rights issues related to disability are featured in a documentary you show your students called Crip Camp. Yeah, so you're looking at a camp that started right in New York, and it started originally in the 50s. But then during, like, the 60s movement, right, it just kind of converges that all these different people who end up being movers and shakers in the disability rights movement are there all at the same time. So if you have a disability, this is a camp you can go to, and it's just like any other camp, but there's lots of discussion that happens amongst these disabled participants about like life activities, like how are you treated at home? Like, well, how is it different here versus there? And just you come to camp and you have other people helping you, your friends at the camp. So it's like, here's a different way that we could be in the world. It doesn't have to be the way it is when I'm at home. Let's play a scene from the documentary. And this is a woman named Judy who's describing what it was like for her as a kid with polio and her experiences with other children. So one day I was going to the candy store with a group of friends. My friend was pushing my wheelchair and we went around the block and this kids came over. This one boy said, are you sick? And I was really, like, taken aback. And I recall that I meekishly said, no, I'm not sick. But I remember I wanted to cry. It was an awakening that people saw me not as Judy, but as somebody who was sick. When I was five years old, my mother took me to the local school to enroll me. But the principal said I couldn't go to that school because I couldn't walk, I could be a fire hazard. So basically, my mother was teaching me. Of course, all my friends in the neighborhood were going to school, but I was at home. Then one day when I was about eight, nine years old, my mom got a call that there was an opening in PS 219 in the special ed classes. The classes for disabled kids were in the basement. The other classes were upstairs. I mean, in some way, even when we were that young, we knew that we were all being sidelined. Right. Even though we were that young, we knew we were being sidelined. Right, right. And I feel like this movie is so important to my class because I like to talk about you hear Judy, right? She's talking about her own internalized sense of ethos, her own sense of character and who she is. And then you have this boy, like in the neighborhood, coming by and saying, are you sick, right? And then you have this external source telling you what you are. And I always talk to students about ethos is so important, right? It's like the one thing you have, right? And I feel like in that instance, she felt like it was taken away from her, like when she's being redefined by somebody else. Won't there always be children saying, are you sick? Right, right, yeah. I mean, there will always be those kids who say the thing that's so changed her understanding of herself. Right. But if we were introducing this topic of disability earlier in our educational process, maybe it wouldn't be that. It would be like, oh, there's Judy. Or how can I play with her? Like, it might be different than how I play with other kids, but like, she's part of the team too, instead of asking those questions. So start like when they're in preschool or, you know, introduce them to kind of, here's the range of people that are in the world and we're all valid. What did you notice when you were growing up in grade school about how the kids were treated differently in class? I had a classmate. I'm still not sure what he was diagnosed with, but there was a cardboard box around 
like kind of going around him in the front of him and it was to help him focus, I think. And he would poke he would poke his pencil through this cardboard box contraption around him. And I was told not to speak with him because it would make him lose focus, but I would always talk to him. That was heartbreaking to me about how how I liked that he was in the same class with us, but that he was marked as different was was problematic to me. Um, and then when I was away at undergrad, I had a class a peer who has rheumatoid arthritis, and he was in a wheelchair. And I learned very quickly that this restaurant I loved, he couldn't go in it. He said that's not that's not disability friendly. And then after I became a professor at JMU, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and. I became aware of the difficulties of declaring that or saying kind of here's who I am now or does it impact my job or, you know, what's going to happen. How scary was it for you? This was in 2007. Yeah. How scary was it to bring it up with your bosses? I was terrified. I thought they were going to fire me. I, I thought they would say you're not going to last because all the all the... All the visualizations of that particular disability, right, are pretty negative. They have been historically, right, that people think, oh, you're just going to crumble and die, that you're not going to be able to walk. And I don't think that was the issue, but it's because you know there's so many other things that could happen as well. Did you hold off for a while because it was too scary to let people know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't tell my parents. <laughs> I waited and waited. I, I thought they'll have, they'll crumble, right? So I didn't want anybody in my family to know. I didn't want my boss to know. I didn't want... Most of my colleagues, I was, yeah, I was terrified. Why did you eventually tell your boss? I had another colleague who has since passed. Um, she had cancer, but she had said, you need to because you need to get this on record so that you can get accommodations. If you don't declare this, if you don't talk about it, you'll never get the accommodations that you need. And she's right. Like there's the paperwork part of it, right, that you must file. Otherwise, you can't just like stand up and say, hey, I need I need like voice recognition stuff on my computer so I don't have to, t you know what I mean? So it'll do like the typing for you type of thing. You can't just like all of a sudden stand up and say that one day and demand it. Were there a series of steps that as an employee of your university that you would go through in order to say, hey, I have this disability. Can you help me? Yeah, well, here was at the time, the way it was set up at the time, I believe, there are forms that you could fill out and they've changed since, I will say that. They've made them, I think, a little bit, I think they're better. They didn't mean it to hurt my feelings or get me upset. But at the time, there were questions about like, how, what's your illness? And like, how long is it going to last? And I just remember laughing and laughing hysterically, like I must have sounded crazy. I'm like, <laughs> if I knew that, yeah. I would, if I knew how long it was going to last, that might change the trajectory of my life in like such important ways, right? right. If I knew you're going to die or you're going to have something bad happen on X day, I'd just cash in my chips and I'd be like traveling, right? Or I'd be going and doing the like the dreams that you have for yourself. <laughs> but I, you know, I didn't know how to, that question really confounded me. And I get why somebody who wasn't trained would ask such a thing. Right, But right. a terrible thing to be asked. And now I imagine as the years have gone by, there's better protocol in place. Yes, there is. And I don't, and again, they didn't, it's not bad intent on their part. And I don't think they're recognizing that. But as somebody who studied rhetoric, I'm looking at the form going, yeah, I wish this was phrased differently. Or can we do this in a, in a more helpful manner? I'm like, let me tell you about what I can do. Let me tell you about like what's still amazing about me that you can find useful of me as an employee in your department, right? Instead of like, what, what, what are the limitations? There's a lot of questions about what are your limitations? What accommodations did they offer you? And what did you find out as time went by you really needed? It wasn't what they offered. They, you, you had to ask, right? I feel like what they were able to offer me was everything I needed. JMU has been wonderful. I'm like, I need to have breaks in between my classes, right? Like I have problems when it's really, really warm outside. So I don't like to go to spring graduation if I'm like in a, right, basically a garbage bag. That's what it feels like <laughs> standing out there in the hot sun. Like I, yeah. I melt kind of a thing. Those are my, my big accommodations, right? Like I just wanted breaks in between classes and they've been able to like help me on that front. And I'm very grateful. Have you launched a deep look into how colleges and universities around the country might improve this process for professors to disclose their disability? Yes. And so I've done a lot of research in the state of Virginia. And not to pick on Virginia, right? I looked at kind of what were all the forms that you had to fill out as a faculty member if you wanted to declare a disability. And things have begun to change, but that idea of like, how do we change the forms, right? How do we make it easier? How do we make it more, right? 
human. Like instead of feeling like you're an oddity, right? Like, oh, when, how long is it going to last kind of questions. I feel that we're all on the health continuum, Mm -hmm. right? And that at any point we're already dealing with or we're likely to deal with some diminution in our health. And in that moment, we need every accommodation imaginable and deserve it. Right, right. And I wish our society, our government, our cultural awareness was structured around that. Right. I, I totally agree with you. And I feel like in the field of disability studies, people who are huge disability advocates look at the other section of the population and say, yeah, you're tabs. You're the temporarily able-bodied. And it's not going to last, probably. You're going to have some moment in your life where you, you're going to need an accommodation. Oh, I've never heard that. I've heard able-bodied. Yeah. I haven't heard temporarily, temporarily able-bodied. Yeah. <laughs> so true, right? Yeah, yeah. But once people know about this, like I was talking to you about in my class, it's like, wow, like everything shifts. And it's just so profound for me to see students having these experiences and thinking, I'm going to change like how I look at my profession or I'm going to like become an advocate for this or I'm going to, right? I've had people help their parents like restructure stuff for their own like work environments. Like, how can you do this differently? And so that's like the, that's the payoff for me. Susan Getchick, this is so powerful. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you very much for having me. Susan Getchick is a rhetoric and composition professor at James Madison University. Traditional ways of teaching don't always work for every student. That's what prompted my next guest to look for alternatives. Laurie Cubison is an English professor at Radford University. She says a teaching method called Universal Design for Learning better serves students who have a diverse array of learning needs. Laurie, tell me when you first noticed that you needed to change the way you were teaching college students, that you thought there must be a better way. I believe it was spring 2019, and I was teaching our first semester introductory writing course. And these were students who were taking it during spring, often because they had withdrawn or failed the class in the fall. And I had a couple students that seemed to be approaching the class with different struggles. One had, I believe she had failed the fall semester, and during the winter break, she had been tested and diagnosed with ADHD. And in the same class, I had a different student who was pinging my teacher's radar as neurodivergent. Sure. And it was kind of like pulling teeth to get him to focus and turn work in. And I was noticing similar challenges in other students that semester. And I was thinking, very few students failed my class because they had poor literacy skills. Their reading and their writing wasn't really the problem. The problem was getting their work turned in, showing up for class every day. I was trying to figure out what on earth was going on. I'm so impressed that you wanted to find a different approach, that you didn't just try to sort of ram Same old, same old through. Well, I started talking to a colleague in our school of education who worked with special education prospective teachers. Help me figure this out. And so she pointed me in the direction of executive function. And executive function is that aspect of how our brains work that has to do with time management, with organizing your work, thinking through plans, your working memory. And I realized that that was the fundamental issue. But there was more to it than disability. Some students had learning disabilities or ADHD or were on the autism spectrum, but others had never really learned how to manage their own calendars, for instance. Or they were suffering from anxiety or depression or they were trying to have a 40-hour-a-week job and commute to campus. Trying to figure out how to best work with these students led me to Universal Design for Learning. What is Universal Design for Learning, and 
How does it better serve these students? Well, universal design for learning is a different way of looking at disabilities and success in academic work. We're used to looking at progress of disabled students in terms of accommodations for a single student. But universal design for learning is focused less on the individual student and more on the barriers that, while they do affect students with disabilities, they also affect other students and that other students without disabilities can benefit from the changes. Universal design is a concept originated in architecture. The classic examples are curb cuts and automatic doors. Say you go to the local grocery store, you're going in through the automatic door. Your cart goes through, somebody in the wheelchair can go through easily, somebody who's got two children hanging on their arm, can all use the same automatic door easily and conveniently without dealing with the barrier of trying to grab onto a door handle and open it and manage everything that is in their hands at the same time. Right. So why not make this design that's universally wonderful for everyone and not just for a few? Exactly. One of the examples that often gets used is the idea of having a ramp for an entrance to a building alongside steps, but say it's a snowy day and the custodian needs to clean either the ramp or the steps. If this custodian cleans the ramp, everybody can get in the building. Right. If only the steps are clean of snow, then the people in the wheelchair, the people who have mobility issues, the person who needs to bring in a hand truck is going to struggle. So what did you go about doing in your case? One of the things about universal design for learning is that you want it to provide flexibility for the students so that a student whose mind thinks one way can take a particular approach to the material on the computing system, while another student whose mind works another way can take another path. So when I upload all of my information and materials, set up the quizzes and assignments and so on, I give students essentially three paths through the material. There's kind of a daily path, there's a weekly path, and there's a big picture unit or module path. And so for students experiencing the class, they can choose essentially the time frame that is most comfortable for them, the level of detail that's most comfortable for them. The information is all the same, the due dates are all the same, but how they interact with it is up to them. Did it get any better for students in your class, could you tell? I think so. There's been a lot of appreciation for the checklists in particular. I've also become much more explicit in explaining why things are arranged the way they are, why we're doing things in class. Here's how you're going to use this technique in a psychology class. Here's how you're going to use this technique when you go into this other course. So being much more explicit on the rationale for what we're doing. How common do you think it is that college students have learning disabilities that haven't been diagnosed before? I think that their diagnoses are much more common now than they would have been when I was a college student. Right. Unless you were very significantly affected by a learning disability, you probably weren't identified. I know thinking back to my childhood, if I'd been diagnosed with a sensory processing issue, my life would have been a lot different in terms of having coping skills. Right. But that's something that uh, I don't think that students were even diagnosed with when I was uh, young. Do you have sensory processing issues? Yes. What does that mean for you? Um, very sensitive to light 
sound, smell, odors in the air, clumsy, uncoordinated, tendency toward headaches, uh, tendency toward sensory overload. That's a lot. How could a diagnosis maybe have been different for you? Had you had one, how could they have helped? Well, from what I understand, occupational therapy works a lot with people with sensory processing issues. And I think I could have really used help with coordination exercises. Sure. Because I've I've always been very uncoordinated. But I think also kind of an awareness of the reason you have motion sickness when you get in the car to grandma's house is because you're reacting to the sensation of being in the car, that sort of thing. Sure. We're all extremely different, and there's so many different ways that we can give people a boost when they need a little bit of help in one direction or another. Yes, and that there are reasons for the differences. It's not just so-and-so is a weird kid, but so-and-so has a particular brain chemistry that is interacting with the world in a given way. Totally true. Laurie Cubison, thank you for sharing your insight on With Good Reason. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. As you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about it. Laurie Cubison is an English professor at Radford University. Come to this year's Virginia Festival of the Book as they present Wine and Words with best-selling author Jamie Attenberg. This literary happy hour celebrates Attenberg's new book, 1,000 Words, a book about becoming and staying motivated, whether you're a practiced writer or anyone in search of a creative spark. To buy tickets, visit vabook.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Custo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>